Welcome to Judgment Days, where we explore matters of religion, religious history and faith, and their impact on the world. I'm your host, Albert, and along with my co-host, Michael, we welcome you to join us on this journey. Abraham is the most important figure to all three religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Abraham was the first person described in the Bible as turning away from idols and believing in the one God and believing that none of those little statues could be what God is. It can't be the image of what God is. Right. He's the first person to say God cannot be captured by one of your little images. He had faith in the one God and he didn't even he didn't have a Torah, he didn't have law yet. He didn't have any of it. He was the first person that came to the realization according to the Bible, of course. He's it's questionable whether he was a, an authentic figure or not, whether he's an actual historical figure. Um it's not until a little later in the Bible that we start getting people that we can actually pin down historically. The first people of the Bible, they're most likely maybe loosely based on some kind of an ancient ancestor that everyone remembered. So Abraham is one of those figures. In Judaism, there are no images of God. In Christianity, are there? Yes. Obviously, if you go into the Catholic Church, you see paintings and pictures and statues and all of it. Of God? Of Jesus, or sometimes even God represented as a man with a flowing white beard. You know, imagery. But you only find that in, in Christianity. Not in Islam either, right? Not in Islam. Islam will not even present images of other things, like birds or anything, nothing. When they present to you their houses of worship, what they have is they'll have the, um, the architecture reflect a certain style. It's an Islamic style. And they'll have writing and they'll have ornamentation that's very elaborate. So you'll know you're in a mosque. It's beautiful, like, like you know, Islamic tiles. And designs Islamic and patterns. Designs and yeah. patterns and gold leaf. But they'll never have any images. They don't use images. They'll never represent any holy man as an image in any of their places of worship. Because and they take very seriously the commandment not to make graven images or have any representations of God or anything holy. From Abraham. <clears throat> From Abraham, really, yeah. But Christians, we were at a Catholic service a couple of weeks ago, and even on the windows you have everything. Yeah. Why is that? The um, Catholic Church at one point decided, at one point the Catholic Church began to use images. Christians felt okay with using iconography right, using imagery to represent the divine. As long as it was understood that you don't worship the images. So now the, the main church was at that time called, you know, the, the Catholic church, meaning universal church, right? What we see now of the Catholic church is the Roman Catholic church, meaning it's the church of Rome. That church allowed for images to be used. Now, at one time, the church was one, and then it broke into two. The other side of it became the Greek Orthodox Church. 
Now, in the Greek Orthodox Church, they also allow for images of Christ, but they don't use statues. The statues you see in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which makes sense because Rome was very fond of statues. Right, That's but they sort of took lots of liberties. and They took liberties with it. Now, what happened was the use of icons became popular, and then there was a Christian, and I, I don't know the dates, but there was a Christian uprising among the faithful saying that they felt that it violated that commandment, thou shalt not make any graven images unto thee. So what they started doing was they would go into the churches and destroy the statues. Like Who would do this? Other Christians. Like Christian, going to the Roman church. Christian believers, yeah, and they might have been Roman Catholics themselves, but they felt something was wrong about that. Like we're, we're stepping back toward paganism. Like we're starting to kind of like go in that direction again. So they became known as iconoclasts, right? Which is what you've called me before. Right. An iconoclast is anybody who shatters an image. We use it now <laughs> of anything, right? If we say, you know, Obama was a great president, there's a whole bunch of people that want to destroy his image as a good man. They're iconoclasts. They want to stop this. Right. You know, but so they were true iconoclasts, meaning they were literally, they were literally destroying destroy images. physical yeah. Im imagery. Right. And to this day, um, in the Protestant churches, images of Jesus are not normally used. They might use them in Sunday school material, or they might have a painting of Jesus, like the uh, Baptist church. church we visited, but they won't have a three-dimensional thing, like a statue. That's really mostly concentrated to Catholicism. To Catholicism, yeah. It's pretty much Catholicism. That's now, what's the importance of not having a statue? What does that do to a society if you have a statue to worship? Well, the thing is, the Catholics don't worship the saints or the statues or the images of... Right, right. What they do is they pay reverence to them in homage to the actual figure. Um, the way you would not allow somebody to rip your mother's picture. It's not your mother, but it's a representation of her, and it means something to you. So you don't want somebody destroying it. We don't go around ripping each other's pictures of... of family members we love. We would consider that wicked to do. But in the same sense, the Catholic Church sees it the same way. If you want to destroy our statues, this is something that represents something we love. Naturally, there's an inherent problem with that because if you're going into a church that was built during uh, the Renaissance or something, when it was all a whole bunch of Italians and all the statues look like Italian Jesus, Italian Mary, Italian Paul, it's obvious that if you're a black man walking into one of those churches, you might feel alienated because all the images of the divine seem white. You know, and that was a point that Muhammad Ali used to bring up a lot. You know, he, he would always say, you know, how, why is it that when you go to church, Jesus is white, Mary's white, all the angels are white. He told his mama, mama, when I go to heaven, and I'm going to be white? Like, do I turn, do we turn white? Are there black angels? How come I never see them, you know? Well, because people create images in their own image. Right, right. So we know that now. We know that now. But we can see the problem if you're trying to now incorporate other races, how you've, in a sense, made the divine look Caucasian. When, in fact, Jesus was a man of color himself, so it doesn't even represent him right. properly. So Judaism and Islam have that in common in that they will not feature images, images of divinity. 
Right. Christianity will. Right. Okay. They don't incorporate them into their worship. Um, in Islam, they don't use them at all, which is why you've never seen a movie about the life of Muhammad. Because they right. won't even allow someone to play Muhammad because that to them is sacrilegious. Well, is it sacrilegious to see Jesus portrayed? Um, for Christians, it's not because we recognize that he was a man and so another man can play this man. Right. And we know it's a film. Like, you know, but in Islam, the way it's set up is that it's offensive to them. And these are just the sensibilities of any particular religion. I mean, as a Christian, I can sit there and have a, have a ham and cheese sandwich. Clearly, I can't offer that to my Muslim neighbor, nor my Jewish neighbor, because it contains pork. Another thing they have in common. Dietary laws. Dietary laws. In the Old Testament, um, and when I say Old Testament, I'm using the Christian term. Jews obviously do not refer to their Bible as the Old Testament. They refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. Right. The Tanakh, right? Within the Tanakh, you have, you know, the multiple writings, but it's not considered old or some kind of a part one of a part two story. It's the like, main story. It's their story, right. Um, so when I use New Testament, I'm only, or Old Testament, I'm only using it From in the, the Christian, Christian perspective. Sense, right. Okay. But we must always keep that in mind. That right. if you're talking to somebody Jewish, it's offensive to say the New Testament, Old Testament, because they don't see your story as a second half to their story. There are commands in the, uh, in the Torah, you know. The Torah is the... The Torah would be the first five books of the Bible, which are the law that was given unto Moses. That okay. was Those are the laws that must be kept by all people of the Jewish faith. That's called the Torah. So you keep Torah. And part of keeping Torah is a series of dietary laws. And the reason God set that up was not because there's something inherently wrong with eating a pig. The reason why they have strict dietary laws is because again and again... God is drumming into the Hebrew people, into the Israelites, the Jewish people, that you're to be different from the other nations. You're not supposed to be like them. You're not supposed to eat the foods they eat. So you have your own strict dietary laws. You have your own strict purity laws, what's considered pure and impure. Um, so they, these are encoded in their law. And that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a contract. So they believe that God made a contract with the Jewish people on Mount Sinai when Moses came down with the tablets containing the, the Ten Commandments. Okay. So, so to the Jewish people, the most important thing is the Torah. Like, that's it. Like, that's the most important thing because that's their contract with God. And so a lot of times if things don't go right for the Jewish people or if they're suffering persecution or something— the more religious inclined will often say, like, maybe it's because we're not keeping Torah. We haven't been following our, our part of the deal. God said, you're my chosen. I'll protect you. I'll watch over you. I'll preserve you. But you have to keep my laws. I don't expect this from other nations. They're not required to keep Torah. It's not. There's nowhere in the, in the Hebrew Bible where God says all the nations should keep Torah. He says, you're my chosen ones. You keep Torah. And by chosen, he doesn't mean favorite. By chosen, he means I've given you a 
purpose. Like I've set you aside for a purpose. You're the chosen because you're to be a light unto the Gentiles, a light unto the nations. That's what the word Gentile means. It just means nations. You know, so it's now synonymous with anyone who's not Jewish. But it, it means the other nations, everybody outside of Israel. Part of this covenant is to not eat or consume what? Or to um, keep kosher, of course. But It's keeping kosher. What does right, that is the mean? correct word. Um, well, it, it just means that these are, these are animals that God considers clean and unclean, things you should eat and should not eat. Um, and there are rules to it, which I, at the moment escape me, but there is some kind of a framework, a logic to what kind of animals can be eaten and what kind can't. But they're spelled out in the Torah. The Torah will tell you. Only those with cloven hoof and that chew their cuds, such Remember as oxen, yeah. sheep, goats, deer, gazelles, roebuck, wild goats, ibex, antelopes and mountain sheep those are kosher animals kosher right. okay what's famously not kosher is is our pigs right ham right halal would be the islamic version of being kosher okay what is halal what is what is permitted in other words what's permitted to be eaten what is not what is not permitted to be eaten in in islam i believe the word is haram it's forbidden means forbidden. What are some examples of foods they cannot eat? They won't eat bacon. Ham. They won't drink Will they eat ham? Any liquor. To them, that's forbidden. Muslims do not drink liquor. At all. Not a glass of wine, not a sip of beer, none of it. Right. You remember the uh, my driver the other day, we mm -hmm. were talking, and he said he doesn't drink at all. Right. Or play the lottery. Right. So they have their own unique, while in Judaism and Christianity, you're allowed to drink. Um, you may have certain Protestant denominations that really don't allow people to drink and teach against it mm -hmm. because the prohibition is on getting drunk in the Bible. And we all know it's a slippery slope when you're drinking. I mean, right. you could be drinking and then by that second drink, you're feeling drunk and you, you didn't realize you crossed over. So that's, that's why it's, a lot of Christians tend to go against it. The Muslims just will not allow it at all. Why even go there with that, that uh, substance? So with halal and with kosher foods, the food that's kosher or is, is the right terminology halal, the, the foods that are halal and kosher are not meant to touch other foods or even other utensils that have touched non-kosher or non-halal food. Is that right? right? Right. There's the concept of being clean and unclean. Um, and I can't speak too much to the Islamic version mm -hmm. of it because I'm limited in my knowledge of Islam. It's it's more about having boundaries and not crossing those boundaries and having having a clear separation from the way the other people eat. Having a commanded way to eat. Is it just that or is it back, you know, thousands of years ago, pigs could have been Well, yeah, they, they probably gave you trichinosis, which is, you know, something that happens when you eat Improperly cooked, improperly cooked pork, and I'm sure that a lot of people got sick eating pork. And, and I'm somebody still buried. said, somebody said, you know, we probably this is not a clean animal. I mean, with with a pig, I mean, for many I'm still Muslims, cautious with pigs. For many Muslims, it's just that, like they'll say, look at it. I mean, look at it. It's, it's rolling in mud it's and rolling around in the dirt and mud, and it'll eat any garbage you put before it. It'll go through a garbage can and eat everything. 
you know, and, and the minute you take a pig and you clean them up and you wash them up and you put them outside, you go right back to the mud. So sometimes that um, that imagery for Judaism and for, for Islam represents a sinful state, right? How you can be clean and then go out and, and dirty yourself again. You know, Maybe even subconsciously it teaches you a lesson, right? Right. There, there is, right. There is this uh, spiritual message behind labeling things so that you in a sense and understand your spiritual role you can't be unclean you should not partake of unclean things so why is that why are those rules not in christianity uh good question that's a very good question by the time uh christianity comes on the scene and mind you it comes hundreds of years before islam um Christianity pretty much starts off as Judaism, and Jesus kept kosher. Jesus kept kosher. His, his disciples kept kosher. All of them were Torah-observant Jews. They kept the law of Moses. Very important. But by the time you get to Paul, Paul is the one that changed the whole program. Paul for Christians? Said, for Christians. Okay. Now, Paul was the so-called or self-appointed apostle to the Gentiles. He met with James, the brother of Jesus. He met with Peter, Jesus' main disciple. They said, we'll preach to the Jews. You go preach to the Gentiles. Paul never met Jesus, never met the man, never even knew him. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was a Jew who persecuted Christians for believing that this man was the Messiah. And on the road to Damascus, he sees, he has a vision. And he's on a horse and he falls off the horse and he's like, he sees a blinding light. And he says, who are you, Lord? And from the light, he hears a voice. He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And then from there on, he has this revelation of Jesus Christ. So with Paul, it's very interesting because Paul wasn't that interested in the historical Jesus. What mattered to him was this that he was receiving these revelations from Christ, the cosmic Christ, the risen, resurrected Jesus in heaven. When the church was founded by Jesus, it was a Jewish movement. Christians were still going to synagogue, and there were Jews. And their religion was Judaism. I mean, there was no break. After Jesus dies, and whether you believe it or not, a resurrection, then this new faith is born based on Jesus of Nazareth. Where Jesus of Nazareth practiced Judaism, now Christianity is based on Judaism, but is the worship of Jesus as the Son of God. Where Judaism is what? The worship of God. There is no Son of God in Judaism. In Judaism, there are sons and daughters of God, which is all of humanity. We are the sons and daughters of God. But Christianity says Jesus is his only begotten son, his one unique son in a very special way that no one else is. And that's the main difference between Christianity and Judaism. And Judaism. Is that so, Christians believe Jesus is the son of God and we worship right. him as this divine being as a divine being because he's the closest thing that we have seen touched feel to felt, God to God right so 
For Christians, it goes even further because he's declared the Son of God, which in the ancient world would have represented a title of authority. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. And so we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore on an altar to God the way it was done before. Now, when you've sacrificed an animal to God in the temple, it was understood you took the, the animal home and you ate it. So it wasn't like you just killed an animal to some barbaric act before God. It's what we do all the time. We slaughter animals and we eat them. Except that this animal was offered up to God and there was a recognition that this thing gave its life so that you can live. So um, with, that, with that in mind, Paul has this new revelation that says that you don't have to be circumcised. Oh, so in Judaism and in, in Islam, that's another similarity. That's another similarity. Circumcision. I didn't They're know very Muslims similar were circumcised. Yeah. All of cool. them are circumcised. Yeah. The men, at least. But, you know, that's a requirement. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So Jesus was, for Christians, the ultimate sacrifice. So there's no need for you to, 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 make, to, to take any other limitations on your life. So, so pretty that, much what Paul, what Paul saw and envisioned was that as he's speaking to Gentiles, he's trying to figure out a way, how do you bring the Gentiles in to join the family of God, to join the Jews, and to be under the God of the Jews, but at the same sense, not have them convert to Judaism, which was the answer to the Jews of the time. They were like, if you truly want to be in covenant with God, you have to take on the covenant. You have to take on the contract. You have to convert, and now you have to keep Torah. You have to keep the dietary laws. You have to get circumcised. You have to, you know, pray the prayers, read the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Your new people, you could have been a Greek. If you converted to Judaism, you are now a Jew. Like, you are now part of this family, the people of Israel. And you follow matter. these rules. And you follow these rules, and that's what keeps you one people. But Paul's thought that the coming of Jesus also represented the end times. Mind you, the Christians were apocalyptic, meaning the Christians and Jesus himself believed that the world was about to end. And Why? so there was this radical call for because they saw the evil in the world, and they felt like God is this not going to tolerate This has to stop. They would they were oppressed by one um, major nation after another. You know, I mean, in slavery to Egypt, in in bondage to Assyria, in bondage to the Greeks, in bondage to the Romans, always under some alien occupation. But um, Paul thought that now God is bringing together all the peoples of the earth. You don't have to convert to Judaism if you're not Jewish. Um, you don't have to keep the dietary laws, but you do have to keep the ethical laws. So for Paul and for Christians today, you don't keep the ceremonial law. That's known as ceremonial law. You don't keep the dietary laws, right? But you do keep the ethical laws. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't marry your sister. Christians, I believe, have that reputation of being almost holier than thou, right? You keep... In what sense? In, in a sense that they say Christians are judgmental because, oh, we shouldn't do that. 
they're they're a little more concerned with the ethics of of, it. of life. Yeah, yeah. Than than the ceremonial or the um, right. We don't have any. And you know, you know, I grew up Christian, of course. Uh, what do you call it? Culturally, not religiously. And I don't remember any ceremonial things. Well, we have our own ceremonies. Like what though? Baptism. Okay, I didn't I didn't get that? Communion. Communion. Okay, is that only in Catholicism? That's, that's I don't... because you chose not to do it, and no one forced you. Thank God, because it's nothing worse than being. I was forced. a kid, by the way. The story is, yeah. I was at church, huh. and my grandmother asked if I wanted to be baptized. <laughs> I just said no. It's like I don't want to get in the water. I don't, I don't want to get in this pool. Yeah, yeah. It was always this big. The baptism in my church was behind the altar. The altar, but behind. The, the, the curtain and then you would go around and this other door was like such a big it was this big pool and yeah. I was a kid it was just such yeah. this like big almost scary thing right and it, it I knew it was a huge responsibility somehow I didn't really know what it was for what it what it did to you but I didn't want any part of it <laughs> you so know so baptism becomes the entryway into Christianity if you if you are a disciple of so Christ so I'm technically not a Christian you, you're technically not a Christian I'm a free agent you're baptized that's when you're a Christian because that's the entryway into Christianity. And the baptism for Christians um, is based upon an old Jewish custom of the mitzvot, which was a ceremonial bath you took before you partook of certain religious things or maybe before you entered the temple or before you gave clean, your sacrifice. Just clean yourself it's a little a, bit. It's a, it's a physical cleansing that kind of represents a spiritual cleansing as well, right? It's 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 symbolic of something. So the Christians carry that over because Jesus was doing that with the Jews. They were practicing this ceremonial bathing thing. By the way, if you convert to Orthodox Judaism, you undergo that ritual bath. So in a sense, they have baptism too. They would never call it baptism because baptism is a Christian version of it. But there, there is that moment when you have to go into, you know, the uh, the, the the mikvah. That's the correct term, actually, the mikvah, and you 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 immerse yourself and you come out. Wow, it's it's. Um, well, it I, is, I don't want to offend, but well, it's no, no, it is almost because it, the, the, it's the, a cleansing. The ceremony of baptism is based upon that Jewish custom. That's where it comes from, but now it has a different meaning. Right. So when you're baptized. If you were to tell a Jew, get baptized, they're never going to do it. Because a baptism to a Jew means you are converting to, to Christianity. Christianity. right? And now the baptism does not have the original Jewish meaning it once had. Although for Christians, in a sense, it does. It represents the, the outward cleansing that is supposed to represent the inside cleansing that's taking place. Right? There's All religions have, at some point or another, the use of water to represent some kind of a cleansing. You know, the Hindus go into the, the Ganges River and bathe in that river. You know what I mean? So there's there's the Christians, it was the River Jordan, where where John the Baptist, the baptizer, or the immerser, because that's what it means to be a baptizer, someone who immerses others, that was a practice. Jesus also baptized people. What about in Islam? Is there a similar... In Islam, I don't believe that there is um, there's nothing similar to like a, a, a gateway or entryway baptism per se, but they do ablutions, which is like they do ritual cleaning of the hands 
and it's a very customized thing where they, you know, where it's very ritualized. But they're not submerged. They don't immerse the person, right? right? That's a Christian practice. And Judaism, in, in a way. And in right. Judaism yep. as well. But, I mean, it's not... It's a different thing, I understand, but it's a, the, the, yes. the, the, the practice is similar. But it's similar. The meaning is different. The meaning has now taken on a different meaning. For Christians also now, beyond it being a ceremonial cleansing, it became a representation of the death and resurrection of Christ. So when you're baptized, you're submerged as if you are put under the earth. And then you rise from the water, a renewed person. You're now a new thing. The Bible says you're a new creation in Christ. So the water signifies the death and resurrection of Christ and your death and your rebirth to a new life. Which is why a lot of people after they're baptized, like I had a deeply, you know, spiritual um, experience when I was baptized. A lot of people do because it, it signifies like a, it's the reset button on life. You know, it's like reset. And it's a powerful He washed testimony. my sins away. He washed my sins away. And it's done in front of the congregation. And it's signifying you're one of us now. That's the significance. What's important to realize is that life is filled with rituals. We all are ritualistic every day. If you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you comb your hair and you wash your face and you take a shower, you're undergoing a ritual every morning, right? It's your ritual to get on that train, to go to work. It's your ritual to sit at your desk. It's your ritual to click the mouse and start your computer up. These are all rituals. Right? You come home, you cook, it's a ritual. The difference with religious rituals is that they're meant to make you understand that there's the world of the profane and there's the world of the holy. And that certain things, certain rituals, and certain acts are done unto God and only unto God. And that they have significance. And that they should never be part of the profane, the everyday. This is a different thing you do. And so if you go to someone's house and they're Catholic, they have an altar, um, or they have a sacred space. Uh, when we went to your friend's house, the, the one that lives in uh, Houston, he had an altar according to his faith. I forgot what religion he's a part Buddha. of. Buddha. Buddhism. Meaning that in the, in the world, in the vulgar world, and in the world where anything goes, that one thing should be respected and treated differently. That's a sacred space. And I guess from from this conversation and, and past conversations we've had and research, another similarity you know, that we sort of highlighted earlier between Judaism and Islam is, I think, and that Christians don't have, is those rituals are ingrained in their almost daily lives. Right. And it's not in Christianity. Yeah, you have baptism and what have you, but th those are very rare depends on the christians and their level of devotion to god i mean you can have moderate christians who don't have a ritual every day regarding well but you have you might have a catholic who every day wakes up at 5 a.m and prays the rosary and 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 you know and reads their bible and at a set time and but i know but that's still it's very important but sort of Monitoring the food you even eat every day to right. me is a reminder that I am a part of this group. Right. And I don't think Christians have it. We like don't have that, that when it comes to food. Right. 
and food is important because you eat it every day. Do you understand? It's it's a, it's a daily reminder that yes, yes, I'm a part of this group. But Christians, again, I don't but think Christians will incorporate that into the blessing they say before the meal. That's true. So it's the recognition that God has provided this for us. You know, and being thankful for having this meal, and in a way, in a roundabout way, it's being thankful to the creature that died so you can eat it. Right. I mean, you're thinking God, but it's awful. You know, you're, you're right. You're I, I guess we don't see it that you're way. You're recognizing the fact that this was a living thing. When you're eating meat, I'm specifically referring to meat. Obviously, we can all eat vegetables and no one's ever guilty of any sin, right? Like Poor I, things. And they probably them. have, you know, now they, they, they communicate and know all right. types We're of things. More than, right. Yeah, but they're with, living creatures too. I mean, but with animals, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but animals there had to have been suffering. fear and pain and right. suffering and... Right, which is why um, in the Jewish laws and in the Islamic laws, when the animals are slaughtered, it's done in the most humane way. It has to be done quickly. Like you must like slice it, throw the blood, come out quickly. You you can't torture the beast. You can't slow cook it. You can't do something that would cause it great pain. You it's recognized that that's sinful, that that's that's evil. So the slaughterhouses, the the mass slaughter, I don't know if the names are slaughter, but the mass slaughterhouses we see with cows lined up in machines and they're getting their heads chopped off and uh, goats and everything, that's not kosher, nor is it... Kosher would... Kosher... Because the animal was... In the truest sense of the word, kosher means approved and blessed by by a rabbi. rabbi. Right. He has to approve this and say that this animal was killed in accordance with the dietary laws, that this is one of the animals we're permitted to eat, it's okay for you to eat this. So there's a symbol on the food that indicates that it's kosher. You know, a lot of foods will have that symbol. And so, you know, if you're Jewish, you, you're safe in knowing, if I see this symbol, there was there's not going to be Everything a chance of violating right. God's law. Right. right. The same with Islam, too. Same with Islam. They have their own, and that's why they'll have a truck and they'll say, halal. I can go to that truck and know that what I'm eating is not going to violate any Islamic teaching. I'm not in any way stepping out of bounds with my religion. So they have to be careful with... with part of it is understanding the ritual of that, is understanding that you have to be careful what you put into your body. That that the act of putting something into your body itself is a holy thing. Black Christians, we need you guys need to take note. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that ham, that ham tastes good on Christmas time. Yeah, I don't I don't think Jesus would have been pleased to know that on his birth we separate by dressing and macaroni. A gigantic ham. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Where did that come you, from? I mean, you know, I don't know, but I'm just saying we picked right, up right. we picked up a few things in our We've uh, totally we we we've veered so far away from, from the star. The, the Jewish right from the Jewish practice of it.